So once you start taking into account all of these financial transactions across the global north and global south, in other words, if you divide the world into rich and poor countries, just two groups, and net out all the transactions going from the rich to poor and poor to rich countries as a whole, as a globe, including foreign aid, by the way, including charity, including all the generous things, including trade and FDI and interest payments, the net amount today, the, the latest data we have from a couple years ago, is $2 trillion every year moving from the poorest countries to the richest countries. That is extractive. I'm joined through this virtual space by David Olney. Thank you very much for joining us, David. Thank you for making this virtual space work, Tim. That's okay. It's a very exciting episode for you, I think, because some practical outcomes. We're also joined by a very special guest, Fadul Kaboob. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm glad that you think it's a pleasure because I'm really excited and I'm going to ask you way too many questions. That's why I'm here. I'm looking forward. <laughs> Listeners, to give you some context for today, I'm starting to get to the point where I think I know enough of the fundamentals to MMT that I'm having my normal David moment of going, okay, now what are we going to do with it? And particularly having been working on the defense project that I've been working on, you know, with John Bruni at Sage International all year of going, how can Australia really help in the region? How can we have the biggest impact? And of course, as I learned about MMT, it became clear in my brain, well, if Australia applied MMT, what could we do for other countries? How could we help our neighborhood? But then the more I learned, starting to run into MMT stuff on trade, like Stephanie Kelton's chapter on international trade, going, okay, now I've got beginnings of answers. I want more. And it was actually Stephanie who suggested that we should speak to Fadel today because she said he knows so much more about international trade and development. And that's his thing. And I started listening to YouTube videos and went, this is perfect. This is this praxis of theory and practice of now we know we can do something how do we do it and what do we do where would you like to begin today let's start where maybe some of the listeners would would want to start which is a very basic kind of couple minute introduction to what mmt does in terms of shining a bright light on the existing system and identifying weaknesses and identifying the possibilities because at the end of the day we're interested in the possibilities we're told that we're doomed we're told that there is no alternative but mmt essentially shows that there is an alternative many different alternatives and that those things are within reach we're not talking about pie in the sky impossibilities so one of the things that mmt puts on the table for us as opposed to the mainstream approach to public policy is the following the mainstream economic profession and public policy professionals tell us that government spending at the national level is limited by tax revenues and borrowing capacity. And that's dictated and you know, disciplined by, by market forces, which means if you want to address climate change, if you want to address poverty, whatever economic you know, priorities uh, within the country, uh, we're going to have to raise tax revenues or borrow money, which builds the national debt and so on, which, which means it really limits the possibilities. What MMT says is that that fiscal policy space, that spending capacity for the national government is actually much larger than that. It's not unlimited. It's limited or constrained by the risk of inflation. 
And what MMT says about the risk of inflation is that it's determined by two elements that are sort of intertwined in some cases. The first component of that inflation constraint is the availability of productive capacity. If we have more skilled people, if we have more technology, machinery, equipment, raw materials, then we can produce more without pushing up prices, without causing inflation. The good news about that productive capacity is that it's producible. We can train more people, we can invest in education, vocational training, we can build more machinery and infrastructure and so on. So we have the capacity to actually expand the productive capacity, which means we expand the fiscal policy space. So that's one part of the constraint, the inflation constraint. The other part is inflation is also a phenomenon that's caused by too much market power, or what I describe as abusive market power, where you have a few corporations, in some countries, a few individuals who can raise prices because they can, or raise prices because we let them, because the government is not doing its job in regulating markets and democratizing market and stopping you know, corrupt practices, abusive practices. And that kind of inflation risk is not gonna go away by spending less and imposing more austerity on, on the people. That kind of inflation, you only get rid of it by taxing and regulating that market power out of existence, which means you have to have politicians in office who do their job. They're lawmakers, they're regulators. But if they're brought to you by the super PACs, they're brought to you by the pharmaceutical industry lobby or you know, military or energy companies lobby, they're not gonna do their job in regulating those industries. So the more that group of corporations has power and influence in the system, the more they'll suffocate the fiscal policy space. And the more you go aggressively towards democratizing that space, the larger the fiscal policy space, which means the possibilities of investing in education and health and fighting climate change, paying for reparations, we create the fiscal policy space to make that a reality, a possibility, without bankrupting the country, without causing inflation, without a slippery slope to communism or any of the stuff that you hear about uh, all the time. So that's, I think, the, to me, that's the starting point for what we can do with the MMT analysis. It, it opens the door for possibilities. Now we can decide, okay, those are the possibilities. We're gonna elect people in national office who will do nothing about increasing the fiscal policy space and are totally happy with where we are, or we can elect people who will have a strategic industrial policy to increase productive capacity and food production and energy production and you know, medical equipment production so we can provide better services to the population. Or we can have politicians who listen to big hospital networks and the medical association and the pharmaceutical industries and health insurance companies and say, no, this is actually better. We can extract higher profit margins from a system that's exclusive, that doesn't serve the people. Those become policy choices. These are not MMT principles. So we can shine the MMT light on the system and take it to a right-wing direction, <laughs> an exclusive, you know, the 1% direction. You can shine an MMT light on it and say, oh, wait, we can make the system more democratic by having a government of the people, by the people, for the people that serves the needs of the people, the national priorities, without causing inflation or without bankrupting the, the system and so on. So in that sense, MMT is, is not a political agenda 
it's an analytical device that opens up all the possibilities and put, lays them on the table and then says, well, depending on which way you want to take this, you have now your policy options. So when people say we're waiting for MMT to be implemented, MMT is already being implemented to serve the interest of the oil companies and the pharmaceuticals and military industrial complex and the interest of the 1%. We're just saying, we're just saying that's not the only possibility. That's the anti-democratic oligarchic possibility that we're implementing now. But if we democratize the system, there's better options. And this is not just true for a country like the US, the reserve currency country, but this is a possibility that's available to other countries with high degrees of monetary sovereignty. That is countries that don't have external debt, countries that don't you know, tax and spend in their national currency, don't accumulate external debt, and don't necessarily have to fix their exchange rate to any foreign currency uh, in order to protect themselves from external shocks. So that includes Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and, and, and Japan, and so on. So all of these countries have much larger fiscal policy space available to them than what they think. And, and this is you know, not new. This has been the case for decades. Yeah, I think um, so those countries have a, a major role to play, not only in improving the livelihood of their own uh, people, but also in helping us as a globe address major challenges, such as global climate change, such as global inequality, uh, to restore and to address some of the damage that's been done to the planet, that's been done to people because of global austerity over the last few decades. Yeah, it's one of those things I think more people need to understand that if we look when Eisenhower gives his speech at the end of his second term in government about the military industrial complex that he's essentially helped build, but that the military industrial complex has rolled along now for well, at least 70 years where the money is just spent and the deficit is not a problem because no one cares because they want to spend the money on defense and that this can be done in any area we value. So if we look at the moment with Japan, you know, there's some estimates they'll spend at least a hundred billion dollars moving businesses back from China to Japan because they realize the only way they're going to solve some of their economic problems is to not keep doing the neoliberal thing of outsourcing that they actually need to bring some of it home so they can create jobs. It's not a perfect example, but money can be created when you decide you've got that policy desire. And the biggest policy desire today seems to be that stymies people's creativity is the recognition that we're totally and utterly now interlinked and that we might be able to solve things at home and that's great. But if you talk to any young people like any of the people like Tim who I've taught over years, they can all see that to improve the global situation we need to directly help our neighbors, whether they be near or far, who we have more resources than them. We have the educational institutions. We used to have the manufacturing base. We have so many things that mean we can make our bit of the world better by expanding that beyond our immediate countries to our neighborhoods. And that the wonderful thing with MMT, here's the toolkit that says, if you've got the resources and you can manage inflation, not only can you impact on your own country, you can impact on any other country you care about and have a relationship with. If you've got the resources to help them, you manage your own inflation and you help them to learn 
to manage the inflationary potential in their own country. Absolutely. And when it comes to developing countries in, in general, when you dig deeper into what determines that risk of inflation for, for small developing countries, it turns out that the drivers of inflation are typically food imports, energy imports, and a consistent mismatch between the value-added content of what they produce and export and the value-added content of what they import. So if you're producing crude oil for export, even if you're one of the biggest oil exporters in the world, but all you do is export crude oil, but then the next day you're importing gasoline and kerosene and petrochemicals, you're selling the raw material, low value added content, and you're importing the high value added refined petrochemicals. So at the end of the day, you're losing in that game. Plus the very nature of extracting crude oil requires outside technology and a significant cut for you know, foreign companies who are actually drilling and pumping oil for you. So it's, it's not a sustainable industry. And this is just extractive industries. But think of it also in terms of so-called foreign direct investment. You know, companies setting up factories and bringing machines and so on. Developing countries are racing to the bottom to attract those companies who bring the technology, who bring, bring typically the know-how, who bring the intermediate goods, the components, and then use local labor on the cheap, use, in some cases, very weak labor regulations, environmental regulations offered to them by the host country to produce a final product that will be shipped for final consumption in the global north, in the US and Canada and, and so on. So what did that developing country contribute to that production process? Cheap labor, subsidized energy, and, and so on. But the foreign direct investment that we measure usually statistically is the dollar amount that came into the country. But what we fail to measure, to take into account, is the dollar amount that's actually leaving the country at the end of that cycle. Because you know, the profits generated from the sales of the final output is going to be repatriated to shareholders across the globe. None of it is going to be reinvested in the country. So once you start taking into account all of these financial transactions across the global north and global south. In other words, if you divide the world into rich and poor countries, just two groups, and net out all the transactions going from the rich to poor and poor to rich countries as a whole, as a globe, including foreign aid, by the way, including charity, including all the generous things, including trade and FDI and interest payments, the net amount today, the, the latest data we have from a couple years ago, is $2 trillion every year moving from the poorest countries to the richest countries. That is extractive. And that number is on the rise, has been on the rise for the last 20 years, at least since I've been paying attention to this. About 20 years ago, it was about $500, $600 billion. And then a few years later, it was a trillion. And now it's $2 trillion. And we're not doing anything structural to change that pattern, to change the global dynamic. So if we have this conversation in, in five or 10 years, then that number will probably be three, four, maybe $5 trillion. And that is unsustainable from an economic financial standpoint, geopolitical standpoint, ethical standpoint. This will break the system, right? This is extractive, 
right? And, and this is just purely financial. We're not talking about brain drain. We're not talking about the extractive, actual extractive industries and their ecological damage. And the damage is usually done in the, in the most vulnerable communities within developing countries. So all of these patterns are just unsustainable. And with the you know, compounding effect of climate change, with the compounding effect of the pandemic that we're experiencing right now, which may not be the last one that we experience in our lifetime, all of these shocks are exposing, further exposing the vulnerabilities. And we're just muddling through and we haven't designed or thought about a coherent strategy that is global, truly global, to undo some of these dynamics and move towards a much more sustainable ecologically, environmentally, geopolitically sustainable system that benefits everyone. So when we think about, well, what are the possibilities that MMT lays out? If we are thinking truly globally beyond national borders, then you start thinking of the, what we call the spectrum of monetary sovereignty, where on the one end of the spectrum, you have countries like the US and Canada and Australia and UK and Japan that have very high degrees of monetary sovereignty. They have a very large fiscal policy space, spending capacity, and they also happen to have a significant amount of industrial capabilities, research and development capabilities, technological advantage that the other countries on the other end of the spectrum don't have. So those are countries with very limited fiscal policy space, with very limited technological capabilities, and they happen to be, generally speaking, countries that suffered the most from colonialism and post-colonialism and the neoliberal global system that we've designed. They happen to be, in many cases, on the front lines of the effects of climate change, whether it's in the Middle East with the, with the impact of climate change or small Pacific islands and, and beyond. And these are countries that contributed the least in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of the industrialization process that started with the Industrial Revolution and so on. So they contributed the least. They suffered the most with colonial and post-colonial systems. They continue to be part of this extractive system on the receiving end of the extractive system. And they have the least amount of fiscal policy space and capabilities to, to, to address this, this situation. So if you're truly thinking in a holistic way as a global community, then it makes sense to you know, lay out at least the foundation for what I call climate reparations, colonial, neo-colonial reparations, which will be not only transfer of financial resources to the global south, so it can help build resilience to climate change and address global inequality in it and start to undo that dynamic that I described a minute ago. But once you start thinking reparations and you start digging into, well, what does that mean? What does the literature say? What, do, what did the scholars say about reparations? Then you recognize it's a three-step process. Uh, step one is telling the truth you know, about what happened, actually laying out the evidence. So it's not enough to say colonialism and neocolonialism and, and climate damage. You actually have to have something like a truth and reconciliation commission at the global level where every country, you know, has its own maybe version of it. But the point of a truth and reconciliation commission is not, it's not a court system where you're going to send somebody to prison at the end of the process, but it's really for everybody to come together and, you know, acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the damage and hear the victims of this process. And once you lay it all out, the next step becomes the public apology, which is an important step in, in the reparations process. Because once you 
offer a genuine public apology, then you commit yourself to fixing the damage or repairing the damage. And once you talk about reparations, and I think of the term in linguistic terms, then you have to think of, you know, how do you repair a broken structure? Well, it, it will cost some money, so there is financial compensation that is needed, but you actually have to physically, in some cases, repair the broken structure. Like if I have a broken chair, I have to physically fix it, and it will cost me money to do it, and I may need some tools and may need some knowledge and expertise on how to fix it so that it doesn't break in the future. And this global reparations model that I'm laying out here for climate and for colonialism and so on, uh, there will be transfer of financial resources from the countries with the most fiscal policy space with the countries with the least fiscal policy space, but there's also a need for transfer of technology to accelerate the setup of resilient infrastructure in terms of renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, and, and so on. But it has to do also with research and development cooperation, with infusion of basic infrastructure for indigenous knowledge production. Um, because a lot of these things need to be, you know, country-specific, region-specific, and that's really the long-term reparation. Once you build the domestic indigenous knowledge creation, research and development units, you're set for life, essentially, to continue on that path. And that has to be through genuine research and development partnership. And to me, that is also part of reparations, because a lot of the modern-day technology that we use in the West that's now patented by pharmaceutical companies and so on is built on centuries of trial and error and discoveries by indigenous people across the world who you know failed to file for the the intellectual property rights of their discoveries and then that was a lot of it was snatched through decades of colonialism and even to this day there is intellectual property theft from indigenous communities around the world that goes straight into pharmaceutical research and, and so on so when i say reparations by restoring the research and development capabilities and enhancing them in the global south it's not charity it's reparations yeah and i'd even take it a step further than that that one of the things i was thinking about when i started listening to youtube videos is immediately of the 1990s literature on human security that you know people have a fundamental level of all sorts of different things they need just to be secure. And it can be as simple, well, simple or complicated as clean water, access to food, um, you know, ability to travel safely from home to the market, home to school, ability to get a sufficient education. And this sort of came out in the millennium goals. And, you know, there's always been a struggle to achieve them. So the thing is, even if countries don't necessarily want to try any and do anything beyond what has already been proposed. The point is just by meeting the basics of human security and the millennium goals, uh, things would be so much better. And MMT provides a way to work out how to actually effectively fund those policies. And if we can get to that even minimum level, then more than that will get easier and easier, the more experienced we get. Because the benefit of all of this, it seems that most people ignore is that helping other people to flourish means in the end, they do more, we can do more, we can do more, they do more. It creates a sort of raft of success, of thriving together. And I think this is the bit that's been so missed. 
so when you started talking about you know, inclusive rather than extractive institutions, my brain immediately jumped to Jeremy Robinson and Darren Asimoglu and their two books, Narrow Corridor and Why Nations Fail. And making the point, if you have inclusive institutions that look after a whole society, guess what? Things tend to go well. If what you get is extractive, it's almost impossible for things to go well. And when you have the situation of colonialism, then followed by neocolonialism, then followed by the influence of people like the IMF saying, you have to do structural reform, now go learn about neoliberal economics. You've piled extractive on extractive on extractive to the point where human security can't be delivered. The millennium goals don't have a chance. And suddenly yeah. the idea of reparations, you've got to start talking in this stronger language because we've been ignoring the sensible for so long. Yeah, it's like blowing up a balloon. At some point it has to pop and that will be shocking. And we're almost at that point of that's why it has to be spoken about as reparations for the devastation that most of us have caused without understanding what we did. But of course there's a proportion of the economic and political elite who understand exactly why they chose these paths because it gave them access to resources. It secured those resources. It gave them power over continued low cost access where they could manage the consequences of this through a small amount of aid, a degree of absorbing, you know, a proportion of refugees and then just going la 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 the problems over there. And yet we're at the point now where the balloon's going to burst. So suddenly talking about reparations in the terms that you do of, well, the climate's a mess. The structure of the economy is a mess. We don't have inclusive institutions. We have extractive institutions. We don't have regulation of markets to make them fair. We have specific manipulation of markets to allow them to continue to be extractive to the point, as you said, where at a certain point, it's not going to be $2 trillion per year being ripped out of the developing world. And listeners, just listen to that again, $2 trillion a year being ripped out of developing nations. They didn't have spare to start with. And I'm glad you're linking this to human security and, and refugees, and, and I would say national security in some cases. I mean, look at what happened with the Syrian refugee crisis. And you guys in Australia had your little mini refugee crisis over the last few years. Those are nothing compared to what we're going to experience in, in my lifetime and my kids' lifetime in terms of yeah. climate refugees. And on the Syrian front, uh, a lot of people think of it as conflict-driven refugees moving to Europe and, and the panic, you know, global panic about what's going to happen to a few million Syrians moving to, to Europe and the United States. Well, if you think of what actually happened in the Syrian crisis, uh, three years before even the first bullets were fired in that conflict, there was 1.5 million Syrians moving from rural areas to uh, the major cities because of climate change, because Syria experienced its most severe drought that moved Syria from self-sufficiency in terms of food production to having to import wheat primarily in 2008 at the peak of the global financial crisis, which was followed immediately by a speculative bubble in commodities market, partly infused by actual droughts in other parts of the world, including Australia and Russia and other places that actually reduced 
wheat production. So now Syria is going from self-sufficiency to becoming a net wheat importer when wheat prices are going through the roof. So we're talking about a drought that killed 85% of the cattle in Syria. Uh, this is pre-conflict, right? This is just climate effect. So now you have 1.5 million people moving to large cities, putting pressure on housing, on hospitals, on education, on access to jobs. And that's a ticking time bomb, literally, in a political environment that's not receptive to you know, criticizing what the government does. So when, when the conflict started, it was just adding fuel to the existing fire. So we're not saying that climate change caused the conflict in Syria, but it certainly exacerbated that. And, we, and, and I can go on and on with examples of other conflicts that were exacerbated by this. So to me, when I see the Syrian refugee crisis, I don't see it as a, as a civil war conflict, refugees moving as an overlay of climate refugees and conflict refugees. Well, most again, scientists today are telling us that within my lifetime, the Middle East, the Gulf region will be uninhabitable for humans during the summer times, which means hundreds of millions of refugees moving somewhere else. So if, it's not if like they've got panic, a holiday house in France and they can go for three months. Just something I want yeah. to add here, because I think it's really important to get so many people in the UK, US and Australia to understand this because it gets missed in our refugee debates. We're always fixated, it seems in Australia, on the pull factors. Australia is amazing. So it pulls people towards Australia. And most of our policies about asylum seekers and refugees have been based on pool factors. But that's the something to be celebrated, is, right? The fact yeah. that Australia is great and people want to move there. Yeah, but you know, what we forget is the push factors. Exactly. And that's what you've tapped into so well with the way you broke Syria down. Like everyone understands who wants to look deeply that the situation was exacerbated by climate, exacerbated by multiple other things, but they were all push factors. And once you've been pushed far enough, then you try and think about, well, where am I going to let myself be pulled towards? So if we're living in countries who have largely deindustrialized and we're freaking out about the potential loss of our quality of life, and we want to keep making the pull factor argument that, wow, life here is so amazing. Can we afford to provide it for more people? Well, the simple answer is probably not. But what we can afford to do very affordably is reduce push factors in the developing world because it normally costs a lot less money to improve a situation somewhere where a few dollars buys more than it is to change the situation in Australia or the US where money doesn't achieve as much. So push factors are the easiest things to alter. So everything Fidel is talking about, about improving the situation through reparations is actually the best bang for buck solution. And keep in mind too, imagine you've had to go from Iraq or Syria and suddenly you're living in Malmo in Sweden. The climate is bizarre compared to everything you know. The culture is entirely different. It has a political system that is unrecognizable. And you may be able to switch on and work out how to fit, and most people do. But why let the world exist in a way where they have to? Most people would rather fix 
or have help to fix their home, where their family is, and all their cultural connections are, and where all the family history is. So if it's the best bang for buck to fix push factors, and it's best psychologically and culturally for people to give them the best chance to improve their home, and MMT gives us the toolkit to start, three big arrows all pointing in the same direction. And they seem to make a, a pretty good argument. And you guys have said something that has reminded me of that old neoliberal statement, a rising tide lifts all boats, which is generally refers to how we can justify some pretty, pretty amazing kinds of economic injustices, really. But you were saying that about how uh, we can, as, as a globe, have a, a fairer and kind of better situation. But the, the other thing you're, you're bringing up, which seems to appeal to maybe some I don't want to put everyone in the same category, but maybe some neoliberals have an opposition to immigration, which now you're saying that you can offer them a solution that will decrease the immigration pressures on their own country. These seem to be this arguments is, that appeal uh, all over, you know, all over the this, kind of political spectrum. This is the point of MMT being a toolkit, not a left or right wing policy. A conservative right wing government could use MMT to secure their own society the way they want it and help secure other societies so people aren't affected by push factors. And the reason I want to make the conservative argument is because what we normally hear is the progressive argument. And the progressive argument is a nice argument because I like multiculturalism. But for the reality where more and more advanced countries are afraid of losing what makes their country their country, the point here is these tools are available to anyone to improve the world and an improved world for everyone. You know, I think it was the former president of Iran, Khatami, I wish I could say his name properly, made the point that insecurity for us is insecurity for everyone. And we're at the point now where all the things that Fadel is talking about in terms of reparation are all forms of insecurity, the consequences of which have inevitable ripples. And those ripples do not stop until they hit a shore and erode the beach and cause a new problem. And, and we so have we to think about what, what security or insecurity means, because a lot of these pieces of the puzzle are actually interconnected. So, for example, I mean, why do people from Guatemala walk, literally walk, you know, thousands of miles to cross the U.S. border? Uh, it's not because of the pull factor alone, the push factor is the war on drugs, which is primarily fueled by US you know, security interest in the region. So when, when I talk about reparations, it's really, again, not as a charity to the individuals in Guatemala or other. It's about acknowledging the damage that was done by the war on drugs, for example. When you think about what happened in Mexico after NAFTA, the free trade agreement with the US and, and Canada, that completely destroyed the agricultural base of Mexico that was self-sufficient in food production, now is a net importer of grain and food from, from the US. So what happened to Mexican farmers who were displaced? Well, conveniently, they moved to work in the factories as unskilled, quote unquote, unskilled labor. Uh, so all of this socioeconomic dislocation is, is damage that was done through these neoliberal policies for the sake of free trade. But now when you put climate change on the table, 
and you realize, well, it doesn't make any sense for a piece of uh, lettuce to be shipped from 3,000, 4,000 miles away to be consumed right here in my hometown when we can actually grow leafy greens in ecologically, environmentally, and uh, an agricultural sustainable way using all kinds of uh, techniques. Uh, and not just in, the Austra in Australia or the US, but in many parts of the world, even in parts of the world that have very limited access to water and so on in the harshest climate using aquaponics techniques and, and so on. Aquaponics, which by the way, was an indigenous technology. It wasn't invented by hippies in the 70s or by MIT. Well, the wonderful example you give of uh, growing fish using the fish yeah. poo to grow the garden. So let's jump. We now, I think, understand the problem sufficiently to make people realize, right, now we can do something about it. And the two things you begin multiple talks talking about is let's help people solve their energy problem and let's help people solve their food problem. And that wonderful example you gave um, of, you know, having the fish farm and then using the water from that and the nutrients out of that to grow your plants. And then by going through the plants, you get the clean water. So the water can go back into the fish again. So you're getting, you know, fish and, plants and keeping the water clean and gradually probably making you know, a more fertile medium to grow things in through this process. So even a micro example, if we view this as whether initially you do it as aid, reparations, reducing push factor, doesn't really matter what you call it. But the minute you can turn around people's food situation you've upped their human security massively. They've now got more time and energy to put in. What do we want our society to be like? What do we want our kids to do with their education? Is energy, is there a simple way to start with energy, Fadel, or is that the more complicated one because it's a much bigger infrastructure cost? Uh, there is a bigger infrastructure cost, but if we're thinking public utility national grid, then it's definitely expensive, but it also reproduces the same power structures yeah. within the country, uh, which may not grids. be the best way moving forward. If anything, you want to decentralize power, you know, no pun intended here, power as in power and Energy. influence, uh, but also it's more, much more efficient to build microgrid in terms of resilience uh, for, of, of the grid itself. Um, and the, so the, the technology that we have today is, is good. It can take us far, but it's not good enough. So we, we need to think long-term, especially if we're thinking scaling this on a global level. For example, you know, solar panels are, are cheaper, more efficient, and, and so on, but they have poisonous stuff in them that we, we haven't even thought about what we're gonna do in 30, 35 years when they become obsolete and we have to get rid of that. We don't have the recycling infrastructure. We don't even have a plan for phasing out those, those things. So that there's plenty of room for research and development, material science research to help us produce you know, better, more efficient, but also ecologically you know, friendly uh, energy infrastructure. If we scale the existing technology, the impact in terms of mining for the raw materials to produce the solar panels and the batteries and all of that is just not sustainable. And again, the impact is gonna be in the most vulnerable communities and in developing countries. But the existing infrastructure, the existing technology can take us, you know, several steps ahead of where we are. Um, we can generate another few hundred million people who have the scientific knowledge to make the breakthrough to improve it. 
Right, and we have we have to put the money on the table to invest in research and development and education across across the globe. But the good news is that there's a lot of low hanging fruits available to us right now without even having to go to solar energy and so on. The low hanging fruits is in the construction side. We're using better, more efficient construction materials, more native construction materials, more native architectural designs um, that are more suitable for the increasingly unstable weather patterns that, that we have in, in parts of the world that face extreme heat waves. Better insulation is a huge improvement. Better public transportation uh, systems that reduce, massively reduce uh, transportation you know, carbon footprint. And as I was saying earlier, that piece of lettuce that's driven or flown in some cases thousands of miles away doesn't need to have that carbon footprint. It can be produced locally. So these are immediate you know, effects. You know, moving to LED lighting as a street lighting and you know, mm. government buildings and so on, huge reduction in carbon footprint. These are things that we can implement tomorrow morning should have been implemented you know, yesterday. Right? But when it comes to research and development, so we can get to the things that we can't even think about today, and this is where the moonshot type of uh, mindset is really important. When JFK said we're going to put a man on the moon in, in a decade, you know, the, the scientists were skeptical. They said, well, give us the resources, we'll put our brains to it. But nobody planned on producing the GPS or, you know, cell phones or mm. laptops or all of this technology that we have today, all this equipment that we're using for this podcast, you know, part of it came out of that massive boom in research and development and, and all of the beautiful things that came out of it, which were not part of the initial goal, but they came out of it. So the same will come out of a massive research and development commitment to really tackling the technological challenge for climate change and the things that will come out of it i'm confident are beyond our imagination but there'll be good things that can help us build resilience in, in the future but we have to set the priorities and commit the resources in that direction that being said on the massive energy savings that we can be benefiting from immediately as we move forward geothermal ventilation which is not again an mit technology that was invented by you know who knows who this is this dates back thousands of years native people knew how to build much better ventilated uh, systems uh, housing units but with our you know technology today we can take that to the next level uh, and we have, I mean, there are massive buildings in, around the world that use geothermal technology that you wouldn't even know that it has a zero carbon footprint. You just walk mm -hmm. in the building and it's comfortable. It's warm or cold, depending on the season. And that's what you need, comfortable temperature indoors, you know, better ventilation. Uh, and we can achieve that today, but you have to have a commitment at the national level, at the global level for every new building moving forward has to have, has to meet certain criteria and has to benefit from built-in infrastructure. Of course, it's much easier to build the geothermal system before you put the building as opposed to after you put the building, which means you have to design it accordingly. So we're not doing enough of this. We're just building more of this you know, nonsense architecture that's yeah. just a massive consumer of energy for no good reason other than it's just a, a ceremonial habit of you know having lived in a world for the last uh, couple of centuries where we didn't really care about you know the the energy cost or the 
of the ecological impact of heating and cooling uh, buildings or you know, transporting food from thousands of miles away. Um, so these are things that we can do immediately and we have the technological capabilities, we have the financial spending capacity, as we said earlier with the MMT fiscal policy space analysis that can be transferred from rich countries to poor countries and vice versa. And our interests here align. So this is not, again, uh, a matter of saying, oh, we're going to punish the rich countries and, and repair the damage or, or whatever. This is everybody benefits from building more uh, sustainable, resilient system. I'll give you an example. And this is, this is not me. This is the financial industry, the insurance industry. They finally woke up to this reality in the last uh, couple of years, at least publicly. I'm sure they woke up to this reality before that, but not publicly. But now we have uh, essentially what we call the carbon bubble, which is think of a stock market bubble of assets being overvalued and then they're going to pop. That bubble is going to pop, it's going to crash. Well, in, in terms of the climate bubble, which some people estimate to $30 trillion uh, globally, and that's a rough number, it's possible that it's much larger than that. I'll give you an example. Think of all the hotels and resorts and, and beautiful homes built on, on the seashore across the globe, right? And think of what climate change and what storms and, and flooding does to those properties. Now, if you're an insurance company and your job is to pay for the damage uh, caused by storms and, uh, and so on, then you really don't want more climate change, you know, costing you more, more money. Uh, a lot of those properties are now uninsurable. In the U.S., this last storm that, that hit uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico over the last couple of days just barely missed the, the major petrochemical refining infrastructure of the United States, which would have been not just flooding of buildings, but things exploding and chemicals mixing and chemicals seeping into the water system, into the soil. It would have been, you know, some people describe it as America's Chernobyl, uh, potentially. It didn't happen, thankfully, this week, but who knows if this is going to be the next storm in two years, in three years, or in three months, right? So these risks are massive. So now, if I'm an investor, I'm saving for retirement, and I'm trusting an investment manager with my money to put in safe assets that will generate returns over the next several decades to keep me you know, financially stable for retirement and so on, then I want you, the investment manager, to do your homework, to do your due diligence, and to figure out where to place my money. And if you're placing my money in uh, hotels and casinos, companies and petrochemical companies that will literally be worth nothing after a major storm, after you know, the impact of climate change, then you're not doing your job, right? Then you're, you're staring at this giant stock market bubble, a carbon bubble in this case, and you're just not seeing it. And then it's gonna blow in your face, in my face, and I'm gonna lose all my money. Right. So financial advisors are recognizing this. Major financial institutions are recognizing this. And now they're saying, well, we have two choices. We either ignore it and this whole thing blows in our faces or we do something about it to mitigate and build more resilience to minimize the impact of climate change on those assets. And that includes energy infrastructure, uh, hotels, and you know, all kinds of things. Just to give you a, a quick number, 
um, in the US, the Union of um, Concerned Scientists, which is a, a scientist organization here that does a lot of uh, work related to climate change and nuclear weapons and things like that. They produced a study uh, a couple years ago called Underwater, I think it's called. And they only looked at the US and they only looked at coastal uh, cities and looked at real estate only. And they estimated, and they specifically picked 2045 as the target year for their study. Because you know, 2045, if I go to my bank today to buy a new house, I will typically get a 30 year mortgage. So 2045 is a year that's included in my mortgage, the new house that I'm buying. So they intentionally picked 2045 to show people that this is within your lifetime, within the lifetime of your investment of your house. And they estimated that the size of what they call, what we call stranded assets, these are assets that will be worth nothing with the impact of climate change, is $1 trillion. And that's guaranteed in 25 years. This is happening in the US. That's $1 trillion loss already. And we haven't counted even the petrochemical plants, the infrastructure, the, the rest of it, the losses, you know, the, the multiplier effect of the losses and so on. So here we have an opportunity as a global community to recognize that everybody's going to lose from this. You know, the richest, most powerful entities, but also the working class people who invest their retirement in those major funds uh, and the global north. But also we have people in the global south who are suffering. So now we have potentially a united front of all you know, interests to say we need to invest in more climate resistant, resilient infrastructure to protect those assets, to protect our wealth, but also to protect vulnerable people in, in, in developing countries who had nothing to contribute essentially in terms of guilt to the process of climate change in terms of carbon emissions or uh, consumption footprint or, or any of that. So I, my hope is that with, with this framework that I'm presenting for a global Green New Deal that involves reparations for climate and for colonial damage, that we build a coherent framework that shows, kind of shines this bright light on all of these, you know, problems that we've built over the decades and these structural dynamics that are deficient, that are extractive, but at the same time show that a better world is within reach. And if we don't have this coherent framework at the global level that ties in all of these pieces, then I'm afraid we're going to have lots of good people doing lots of great work independently you know, some fighting for climate change, you know, uh, climate action here and there, and some fighting for, um, you know, better trade deals and some fighting for better labor laws and better environmental regulations. But we need the holistic piece to accelerate the benefits of those uh, smaller pieces of the puzzle and move the entire thing in one direction that's restorative and that's just. So that's, that's my hope with this vision, with this project. I'm not inventing anything new in a sense. All, everything I mentioned today is out there. I'm just trying to put the whole thing together for people to connect the dots and help build a better understanding of what the crisis is and these multiple crises are and how they interconnect and, and lay the groundwork for, for the possibilities. And I truly believe these possibilities are there and we can coordinate efforts at the global level 
uh, across political lines and across uh, nations to build a more resilient uh, global system. I certainly take your point that everyone stands to lose a lot, right? Makes a lot of sense. And, and that you, you, you kind of mentioned financial advisors and big financial institutions are starting to recognize that they're, they're staring at a big carbon bubble. I, I can't help but feel reminded of the housing market in the US and, and looking at the GFC. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of questioning that, you know, perhaps at an institutional level, they will lose more than they will gain if they continue down the path of just ignoring this bubble. But on the individual level, are individuals going to make the decision that they're going to make more continuing to feed this bubble than they will losing it when it collapses inevitably? And your intuition is right. <laughs> so there are people who are thinking more systematically long-term, but there are people who are just making the calculations and, and making decisions that are best for them. For example, in, in Florida, uh, which is, you know, you know, high risk uh, flood uh, area, which again, coastal areas are typically the most expensive real estate, the beautiful properties and so on. And it just so happens that the, the higher altitude uh, parts of the region at least happen to be the lowest income communities you know, historically. So now where do you think the money is moving? Now there's huge gentrification wave moving to higher grounds, uh, physically to higher grounds, but also displacing the, the poorest uh, communities. Uh, so that is happening too. And those are, you know, strategic decisions, just people worrying about, you know, seeing the impact of, uh, uh, of, of climate change and storms and floods and deciding to move to uh, better, you know, uh, locations to be, you know, better insulated from the impact of storms. So you can still have your resorts and swimming pools and, you know, you know <laughs> energy waste and, and so on, just do it at a higher altitude for now at least, uh, for the next 50 years or so, because the, the, the floods are happening with every storm. So you're right. Uh, so we can't just say everybody's interest is, is gonna line up and everybody's gonna have the right incentive. There'll be people who are still you know, gonna uh, push this to the limit. Uh, and oil companies are, are the best example. Uh, they're, they're not really uh, you know, in any hurry to change their business model. Well, the reality is that if they stop pumping, starting again costs too much. So the best value for money that keeps earning for them is to keep doing what they do. And this is why it's so important for people to do what they believe in and move away and just reduce the profits. Because what we've seen with the carbon bubble is things don't even begin to change until there's a risk to the profit margin. Yeah, that's the cold hard reality. And one of the examples you gave in one of your lectures, I think is fantastic for this. You asked the audience, you know, does anyone like watching boxing? And there was kind of a couple of quiet giggles and you think, well, obviously probably not. Uh, but then you make the point, okay, imagine you've got a heavyweight boxer and a bantamweight boxer. Do we want to see them in the ring together? And everyone's like, no, well, that's our world as it currently is. It doesn't matter how competent you are if you weigh 60 kilos. If someone comes in the ring with more reach and weighs 100 kilos, you're going to get annihilated. So it's the best simple analogy I've ever heard for why anyone who's capable of waking up probably will. Because that analogy alone is either we exist within the Queensbury rules 
and we let those people train in the gym together, but not annihilate each other in the ring. And guess what? Boxing's probably better for those rules. I'd rather not ever box or watch boxing, but the analogy is fantastic. If the and rules the are not for, beneficial for all. Yeah, the, the analogy is to push back against this uh, narrative of competition is good, competition is healthy, yeah. uh, and to you know make the case for free trade because it enhances competition. And, and competition, you know, we were told in the free trade model that it uh, it's good for consumers because you get better prices, better quality, better service, and all of that, which sounds beautiful, right? But when competition is a heavyweight boxing champion with a lightweight boxing champion, that's not called competition. It's illegal, right? Mm. It's, uh, um, as we it's said earlier. It's called slaughter. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not right. So that's what we have in reality. We have these free trade agreements between a heavyweight champion like the United States or Australia and a lightweight, you know, small developing country, and we call it fair. When, you know, a multinational corporation that's larger, many times larger than the GDP of a country, you know, goes and destroys their domestic market and industry and, and becomes really the, the center of power in terms of making strategic decisions. Uh, that's not called competition. That's not consistent with the democracy and freedom and justice and any of the principles that we want to celebrate and, uh, and enhance. Uh, and that's, you know, sometimes it's actually external influence that, that brings this. But as I say in, in some of my work, sometimes the obstacles to competition are built in domestically. Uh, so we talked about, you know, oil exports and gasoline imports and so on. If you're a developing country and you, you know, you depend on uh, gasoline and kerosene imports to run your economy and so on, and most developing countries would have one or two importers who have an exclusive import license to bring in wheat, to bring in medicine, to bring in like key commodities like gasoline and so on. Those individuals have a huge market power. So they don't necessarily set the price of gasoline uh, as in, you know, they don't control global oil prices. But let's say OPEC increases oil prices because of whatever is happening in the world by 20%. So there's a price shock. So the domestic importer will increase the price of gasoline by 20%. You know, it makes sense. To but then when oil prices go down by 20 or 30%, they only decrease gasoline prices by 7%, right? Because they can, because we let them, right? So now you have maybe a political movement, a social movement domestically that wants better public transportation that wants you know, renewable energy production domestically. What do you think that individual or that company that controls energy prices domestically, what do you think they're gonna do with the power and influence they have in the political system to stop that social movement, to stop the election of politicians who promise and who do work to push for domestic energy production? If they're nice, uh, they'll fund the opposition. <laughs> if they're evil, they'll do more. <laughs> Right. So you see now you have built in power structures uh, that are not necessarily influenced by, you know, foreign powers or anything. It's just their vested interest, their position within the power structure tells them it doesn't help to build renewable energy production domestically because I lose my whole market share eventually. Mm -hmm. Same thing if you're the only importer of wheat for the country, like feeding the people. Right. 
do you want small farmers to start you know demanding that the government supports them with building more domestic energy uh, food production uh, resilience system of course not you're going to come up with all kinds of studies and excuses and and lobbying <laughs> influence to make that go away and that's the you know, kind of sort of the clean way to do it and we know in some countries people get killed for trying to challenge power structures uh, in terms of you know, farmers and labor union activists and so on, literally get executed by thugs, hired in some cases by corporations to make them go away. Uh, so this is not a free market, you know, kind of everyone on, on their own doing their best and trying to deliver the invisible hand effect for us. Uh, this can be very vicious, very violent at so many levels. And that's just not sustainable for anybody. Can we take anything out of the fair trade movement that we see around us now? You know, like you can buy fair trade chocolate, fair trade coffee, fair trade clothes. Is this sort of a first attempt to try and have this equivalent of Queensbury rules at an international level for trade? Or is it so small and so early days we just don't know yet? So I'm, I'm not against the, the fair trade uh, movement. A lot of it is, uh, is, is good and supportive, but it's a small drop in the bucket and it's still part of the free trade, you know, architecture. <laughs> yeah, it still gets corroded by the fact that some mega corporation is manipulating a market while the fair trade thing is trying to treat everyone properly. So it might be an example of what better would look like, but it doesn't have the power to spread. Right. So it's like having uh, nuclear power owned by the oil companies instead of having solar panels on everyone's house. Precisely. <laughs> That's a good example. Yeah. Tim, you got any more questions? I feel wildly out of my depth, but I, I really love the discussion because it's felt really optimistic. So I appreciate it. I don't have any more questions, but thank you. <laughs> Let me ask you a question as the youngest person on this podcast sure, <laughs> and maybe more in touch with your generation's point of views and, <laughs> and aspirations. So when you hear something like, you know, all the things you've heard on this podcast by several MMT economists, one of the things that I hear from my students uh, frequently, uh, the younger people is you know, this, this gives me hope because people are so disempowered by the existing narrative that a lot of people feel disconnected from politics because they don't see any possibilities. So I'm, I'm hoping that the MMT framework shows at least the possibilities. So the question is now, how do you take this or, you know, young people in Australia take this into advocacy into policy into political organizing into uh, a set of demands uh, at the national and global level what what do you think you know the next steps should be for this movement that's trying to lay out these possibilities yeah it's interesting i'm uh, so i studied well part of my studies at university have been in um in media and uh really for me my my next biggest thing i guess is trying to put the is trying to put the right option as the the easiest option. Make these kinds of discussions, make these kinds of thoughts, make these kinds of ideas in front of people. Put them put them in front of people and and make it kind of bleedingly obvious that that's what should should happen. Because it's just not for me anyway. Not happening fast enough 
are growing organically like this, unfortunately, you know, it's really, it's really amazing that we get to have this kind of discussion, you know, even just the three of us here, or that you get to present these ideas to students. And I don't want to take away from that. It's, it's just that that growth of the, you know, this many people at a time isn't going to help solve the, uh, isn't going to help solve the problem fast enough, especially if we're talking by 2045 or, you know, we're talking by climate extinction and all those kinds of dates that seem to come up with that. So I have hope, but um, if anything, I think these kinds of realizations have made me more cynical because it's been radio silence, I guess, in the mainstream. And that's what's bothered me. How about you, David? What, where do you see some of these, you know, MMT findings in your space? Where do you see them going uh, in, in, in your circle of friends and circle of colleagues who are not necessarily MMT experts or MMT aware? Well, what kind of possibilities do you see, do they see? That's really, I think, I agree with Tim totally that the mainstream is moving too slow. So for me, it's about making sure this information is packaged in ways that people who want better outcomes don't have to wonder how to get the better outcome. They can pick the better outcome up as a usable tool with a user manual that we have to streamline it to that. And so many people want to get better outcomes. That's pretty much, that's the guaranteed, but they don't, have time for the political parties to work it out. They don't have time for it to be taught to everyone in universities. They need something now that they can implement in a tiny way and maybe not even let someone else know they now know how to improve the situation. They need to apply it, show that it works and convince someone else quickly. And it needs to be convincing through the outcomes. So I think we're at the point now, you know, with MMT where enough people understand the concepts and it's now about they need the one page memo to ministers saying, how would we do something about this practically in our situation now so that they can have a best go of either trying to persuade someone of that or actually physically implement it as a pilot and go, look, the pilot worked. And, and that's going to be the most persuasive thing because Australia is very much a country that is highly capable of deep thought, but is far more persuaded by an example. And maybe a lot of other countries are the same, but we are so deeply down that path. Yeah. And I, and I agree though, that those practical examples, you know, sent to the, you know, ministers, prime minister's office are, can be very powerful. And I'll give you a concrete MMT example for this that's related to inflation, for example, in developing countries. As I said earlier, you know, uh, a huge you know, driver of inflation for developing countries is food imports and energy imports. But who do we have in charge of inflation? It's the central bankers who believe that they can fight inflation by raising interest rates. Well, if the source of inflation is from Russia or the Ukraine or Australia raising wheat prices. And how does the central bank raising interest rate going to tame inflation? You're not even aiming at the right target. If the source of inflation is OPEC raising prices because of a conflict in the Middle East or whatever, how does the central bank raising the interest rate going to convince OPEC to lower their prices? Of course, it has nothing to do with it. So all of this talk about central bankers doing inflation targeting, and now recently they're doing soft inflation targeting. They're just making up with, you know, making up new, new ways of saying that we can still meet the inflation target. So the memo that I would send to the prime minister is saying, 
your central bank is not in charge of inflation. The people who can actually help you fight those sources of inflation is going to be your minister of agriculture, your minister of trade, your minister of renewable energy. They have the keys to this problem in their hands. So give them power, give them funding to build resilience by producing more domestic food, by producing more domestic energy so that when OPEC raises prices, you're insulated from that risk of inflation. Yeah, buffer stock price stabilizations, automatic stabilizations as... Um, yeah, as Stephanie was talking yeah. about, automatic stabilizers. Yeah. On as many things as possible. I, I have this argument all the time because it, it, eventually on this MMT road, you'll come across a free market capitalist and they'll interpret the market as what sets the prices. And you have to argue with them about who sets prices because at the end of the day, it is literally, I guess MMT is literally just about flipping that model of inflation is a choice and not necessarily set by market forces out of your control. That, that is the ideological pivot. So, yeah, and at the moment too, the fact that you know we're we're doing the typical thing that's been done for the last fifty years. We were doing neoliberalism; it got bad because of COVID. Now we're in reactionary Keynesianism, but we're spending at a level that has just not been seen before by neoliberals. They're having a freak out. Well, why are you freaking out? As long as you didn't borrow that money, we don't have a problem. So there's an incredible opportunity at the moment where the financial taps are open to go, they never need to close. They need to be regulated by access to real resources to achieve public goods without causing problems with inflation that we can't manage. As long as we stick to those basic rules, and now's the amazing opportunity with practical examples, I think, to get that across. Like one of our major financial journalists in Australia last Thursday night on the main news bulletin in Australia said, you know, we're creating new money at a rate that's never been seen before. And at the moment, it's not causing any inflation. Isn't this interesting that it goes against everything I learned at uni? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the closest we've got to yeah. someone saying, duh, on Australian yeah. TV about the economy. It was amazing. Right. I mean, in the US, the, 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 the recent uh, months uh, when the pandemic started is, also a fascinating, you know, new example to the current generation to recognize how federal government spent. So a few weeks before the passage of the CARES Act, trillions of dollars worth of spending uh, after, during the pandemic, everybody was convinced there was no money for a Green New Deal, there was no money for healthcare, there was no money for anything. You know, who are we going to tax? Who are we going to borrow? Everybody was concerned. And then 535 lawmakers get together to address the pandemic situation in, in March, and they vote for the CARES Act, and they spend money into existence, trillions of dollars. And at the same time, they didn't say, who did we tax or who did we borrow from? And even better, you know, during that time, the president and secretary of treasury came out and said, by the way, April 15th is coming up. That's when Americans usually pay their taxes to the federal government. Don't worry about that deadline. We don't need you to send us taxes. We're going to postpone that deadline to July 15th. So the government spent money in, into existence, didn't tax anybody, didn't borrow from anybody, and told people, don't send us your tax money on April 15th. We don't need it. Um, so that's the, the best, most recent example on a massive scale to demonstrate that the government can do this without having 
to bankrupt the country, tax anybody, borrow from anybody. That doesn't mean we shouldn't tax. It doesn't mean we shouldn't yeah, tax again, the rich tax or tax for the right for, reason. For other tax reasons, to control right? the market. Yeah. Right. Tax the oligarchy to protect democracy. Tax pollution to decarbonize. You know, tax speculation to stabilize markets, but not because we need their money or their permission to fund a Green New Deal or to have decent quality of life. So I, I believe that your inflation rate has just hit 2%. I'm not sure whether that's your goal. That's what our goal is, uh, Federal Bank. Well, um, if, if you look at the last 12 years, most central banks, you know, the, the Australian uh, Central Bank, the American, the ECB, Bank of Japan, all of them had an inflation inflation target of 2%. Yeah. And if you look at their performance, it's... It's always under. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's under yeah. and sometimes they overshoot by a little bit for, and they don't even know why. Yeah, <laughs> no, they just don't understand anymore because their model doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. There, one of my favorite articles on, on this subject is, uh, is a report in the Financial Times of a couple years ago by a former member of the Federal Reserve uh, Bank who just you know, ended his term in office and a few weeks later was commenting on inflation. And he literally said, and this is the title of the Financial Times article, the Fed has no reliable theory of inflation. In other words, <laughs> translation yeah. in plain language, we have no idea okay. what causes inflation. <laughs> so, and this is after 12 years of trying to hit an inflation target, right? Uh, and this is in part why uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank uh, a few days ago in the U.S. came out with this major speech about inflation and essentially saying, we still want to target inflation. And it's kind of the subtext is we don't really know how to do it. So we're going to set this loose, soft inflation target so that we don't say it's two. It's like two-ish. So if it's like 1.5, we say we hit it. If it's 2.5, we say we kind of hit it. Um, because they know that they can't really hit the 2% inflation because they don't know what causes inflation. Mm. And uh, also, at the moment, why are they worried about 2%? If we look during World War II, I think at its worst in the United Kingdom, I think inflation hit 11% for a few wow. months. <clears throat> but it was brought back down to like 7 within a year and then I think below that. And when you figure the amount of money that was being poured into a post-depression economy. But also inflation itself, you know, the inflation number that central bankers talk about has nothing to do with the inflation that my neighbors and I experience. Because my yeah. neighbors, when, when they hear the news uh, you know, that the inflation rate is 1.9% and say, well, what the hell, where did that come from? I just, my insurance premium just went up by 50% and yeah. my energy cost just went up by 8%. How do you, and these are major spending items in my budget. How does that add up to 1.9%? It doesn't. Yeah. So in terms of the lived experiences of people who actually live and breathe in the economy and actually pay the bills, it has nothing to do with the inflation target that central banks set for themselves. And, and that has to do with, you know, the way we calculate the inflation rate and what goes into it, but it doesn't reflect quality of life or people's struggles to make ends meet. It's why people are still able to be kept so afraid of what inflation is because it hits home harder for every person than it does for someone at a central bank. And yeah, but if, I, but if I tell you that the source of inflation, let's say in, in the case of the US in terms of the healthcare cost, Mm. What drives inflation is market power and corruption and influence of pharmaceuticals and health insurance companies. 
then by God, I'm going to be, you know, fighting for whatever it takes to get rid of that source of inflation, which means yeah. I'm going to vote for politicians who will fight that. Um, yeah. But if I'm told that, you know, this is just markets uh, and has nothing to do with, with power and influence, then I'm going to be listening to the central bank and saying, well, fine, you said it's 1.9, then I guess it's 1.9. Yeah. Yeah, that number becomes meaningless because what you care about is your power bill and your insurance bill. To just jump sideways because it just popped in my head talking about this stuff. The stuff that Phil Lawn does here in Adelaide about the genuine progress indicator. Mm-hmm. Would this be a great thing to put in place across the world as fast as possible? Can test if we're moving closer to this fairer environment? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of Phil's work in quantifying and publishing this, hopefully for every single country on the planet, because it gives not only policymakers, politicians, but also it empowers the general public with an alternative narrative. Uh, so one of the things yeah. you know, Phil does with his uh, work on genuine progress indicators is you have this color-coded picture at the end with GDP graph you know, superimposed on a GPI graph. And you can see GDP is economic growth is what politicians tell us we need to target higher and higher levels of growth. And that's the narrative that we've been fed, that more fracking and more environmental destruction is something we should tolerate because it creates jobs, it creates wealth, it creates prosperity. So the more, you know, pollution we have, we end up with more people going through (laughs) cancer treatment. It gets celebrated on TV. We say, yay, GDP went up by 3% because we built more prisons, because we cleaned up more oil spills and so on. That's not something to be celebrated. So GPI strips GDP of all of those negative evil costs to society and then gives you the pure quality of life measure. And when you see that line going flat, then you realize, now I understand why I feel like I haven't been getting ahead in my lifetime in the last two decades, because quality of life is what people experience. GDP is what they watch on TV. Yeah. So now the, the informed citizen is going to say, well, how do I get this quality of life graph thingy to go up? And then the list of investments pop up. If you want mm. quality of life to go up, you invest in you do these health, and education and infrastructure and you know renewable energy. All of these things will make GPI go up. So then that becomes the metric that the public would demand that policymakers put on their platform. Tell me what is your economic platform um, you know, agenda that will make my quality of life go up, not just GDP go up. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's powerful in that sense because you know, every politician mm-hmm. will understand a color-coded picture in, in your face. You know, tell me what are you gonna do about my quality of life and don't fool me into saying that fracking is good for me because it creates jobs, because it creates you know, wealth, because that also destroys my quality of life. And the wonderful thing you know, with GPI is it was done by a really clever dude here in Adelaide. And if everyone just used the same standard, it's not biased by any government or corporation. It's mm-hmm. just a tool like MMT. <clears throat> so if everyone picked up both tools, You've got one to measure where we're going and one to work out, you know, what we can do to get where we choose to go. And the two can fit side by side and you can be as left wing or as right wing or as centrist as you like, but still have a working toolkit and still have a working analytical tool to work out the consequences of your policy choices.
And that would be an amazing you know, intermediate step to then make the world a better place. It would it would immediately make what we've been talking about, which has been being less extractive and being what was inclusive. It would it would make the inclusive option look like a plus sum game because not only Precisely. would their GPI go up, but our GPI would go up at the same time. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thank you very much for being so generous with all of your time. <laughs> we Thank you for really having me. This, is, this has been fun. I'm glad. I'm sure that you and David will get together for another conversation at some point. But for now, I'd love to. Good. If you'd like to come back and talk <laughs> about stuff later, you know, like talk about all the other things you're working on and just how things are progressing. Absolutely. It'll be my pleasure. All right. Well, thank you very much, Fadl. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.